Welcome to Your Catholic Corner. I'm your show host, Julie South. Your Catholic Corner helps Catholics spiritually prepare for each Sunday's Mass starting on Thursdays each week. You can listen to Your Catholic Corner at yourcatholiccorner.com. Today, we're uncovering the biblical gems hidden in the book of Exodus, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, and from Matthew's Gospel. Liturgically, we're in the 30th Sunday of Ordinary Time in Year A. We'll start off with some historical background so you can better understand what was going on at the time each passage was written, the Bible reading itself, and then my reflection on how God might be asking, or what God might be asking of us here in today's 21st century. But before that, a quick word about your Catholic Corner. Just in case this is your first time here, regardless of where you are on your spiritual journey, whether you've only just heard of that man called Jesus, you're new to Catholicism, or you're a cradle Catholic, my prayer is that your Catholic Corner will help bring God's Word to life in your heart through insights, reflections, and practical applications that help deepen your relationship with God. Every Thursday, we'll start preparing for Mass by uncovering the richness hidden in each Sunday's Bible readings, from Old Testament prophecies to Gospel parables. I invite you to join me and the parishioners of the Cathedral of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Hamilton, New Zealand, sponsors of Your Catholic Corner, so that together we can hear God's Word and echo Samuel. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Now, let's get back to today's show. And let's start off with Exodus. Our first Bible passage today is from the book of Exodus, which forms what's known as the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is a cornerstone in both Jewish and Christian traditions and includes the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. So Penta, P-E-N-T-A, meaning five, Pentateuch. Obviously, all of them are important, otherwise they wouldn't be included. Regarding the Exodus book, which is derived from the Greek term meaning departure, Exodus means, means departure, it aptly describes the central narrative of that book, that is, the Israelites' escape from Egyptian captivity. Following on from the narrative, which began in Genesis, Exodus goes further and goes deeper into the Israelites' trials under Egyptian rule. Moses, who's the central figure in these accounts, facilitates the Israelites' liberation with divine, capital D, divine assistance. It's an emancipatory journey. Emancipatory means the act of setting someone free from legal, social or political restrictions. Here in New Zealand, we usually refer to it inherit in relation to women getting the right to vote. Emancipatory is a derivative of the word emancipate, which means to free from bondage, oppression or restraint. In Exodus, it relates to the liberation of the Israelites, those 
Israelites being free of the Egyptians. Moses recounts the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea in the book of Exodus, which culminates at Mount Sinai. It's on Mount Sinai that the Israelites form a covenant with God, that binding agreement that defines their mutual commitments to each other. So between the Israelites and with God, between God. The book of Exodus also provides specific detail about the construction of the tabernacle. This is a movable place of worship and it prefigures what we have today in our Catholic church buildings. In a Catholic mass, the Eucharist or the consecrated hosts is removed from the tabernacle during the liturgy of the Eucharist. This occurs right before the distribution of communion to us, the faithful. The tabernacle is a special, often ornate container located in a prominent place in the church and houses, as I said just now, the consecrated hosts that have been previously blessed during earlier masses. It's these consecrated hosts we Catholic consider to be the true body of Christ. During the Mass, when it's time for Holy Communion, the priest or a designated minister will open the tabernacle. They'll bow or they'll bend on one knee, remove the ciborium, which is the vessel containing the consecrated hosts, and take this to the altar so the priest can then bless and distribute the Eucharist to the communicants, to the, the worshippers at that Mass. After communion, the remaining consecrated hosts are placed back in the tabernacle. If you've never considered the tabernacle before, its origins are from the book of Exodus. But back to this book. In the book of Exodus, we read about the Israelites grappling with moments of disobedience. We hear about their contrition and then their subsequent atonement. We hear that when they're building the tabernacle and it was complete, a cloud representing God's very presence envelopes it, envelops it. This book, the book of Exodus, not only underscores the evolution of the Israelites into a distinct nation, but also solidifies their unparalleled bond with God. Everything God bestowed upon them at Mount Sinai resonates through subsequent books in the Bible, from the Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament, where Jesus' teachings and miracles are recorded. Today, in particular, we're reading about the laws that reflect the ethical and the social concerns of those ancient Israelites. God is particularly warning them about mistreating or oppressing foreigners, reminding them that they were once foreigners in Egypt themselves. Here, God's calling for empathy, for kindness to outsiders based on shared experiences. God is also calling on them to protect widows and orphans because these people, these groups of people, were the most vulnerable at that time in history. We also have God wanting economic fairness, particularly when it comes to lending. If money is lent to someone in need, then God is saying don't charge interest. If a borrower's cloak is taken as a pledge, as security, then make sure it's returned by sunset because that cloak 
might be the borrower's only protection against the cold at night. What we have here is God's want for us to be compassionate and responsible, especially when we are the fortunate ones. Today, we're hearing about the ancient Israelite society's attempt to institute a moral and an ethical framework. You might relate to these ancient laws today as social justice and care for the marginalized. Now that you have a bit of historical context, let's pray together from the book of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the sons of Israel this, You must not molest the stranger or oppress him, for you lived as strangers in the land of Egypt. You must not be harsh with the widow or with the orphan. If you are harsh with them, they will surely cry out to me, and be sure I shall hear their cry. My anger will flare, and I shall kill you with the sword. Your own wives will be widows, your own children orphans. If you lend money to any of my people, to any poor man among you, you must not play the usurer with him. You must not demand interest from him. If you take another's cloak as a pledge, you must give it back to him before sunset. It is all the covering he has. It is the cloak he wraps his body in. What else would he sleep in? If he cries to me, I will listen, for I am full of pity. Now, let's have a look at Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. If you want to know a bit about Thessalonica, go back to last week's episode. I'll put the link to that in the show notes, because that's where we looked a bit at the city and its people's historical roots. In today's passage, though, Paul's recalling the manner in which the gospel came to the Thessalonians, emphasizing its power, the Holy Spirit, and the full conviction of Paul and his companions. If you've been listening to Your Catholic Corner for a while, you'll have heard me say before that I think Paul could have made his letters easier to read if he included more punctuation. Today's passage is one of those examples. We have sentences that are as long as paragraphs with very few commas or semicolons. In his letter, Paul is praising the Thessalonian believers for their faith despite facing severe suffering. Paul also refers to their conversion from idolatry to serve the living God and their eager expectation of Jesus' return. The Thessalonians are well known for their strong conversion and their continued faith. They're Paul's protégés, and he's deservedly and understandably proud of them. 
Today's passage gives us an insight into the trials and tribulations of early Christian evangelism. It shows the dynamics of early Christian communities in a pagan urban setting, their relationship with their mentors like Paul, their transformation upon accepting the gospel, and their eager eschatological hope. That's their very faith-based anticipation of having a positive, divinely ordained future, even though they're experiencing challenges or hardships faced in their current and their present. Talking about evangelizers like Paul, Alan and I had a really interesting experience recently. Actually, it was my first ever exactly like this. I'm used to people knocking on my front door, wanting to talk to me about Jesus, usually from Mormons or Jehovah's Witness perspectives. It doesn't seem to happen these days, but I also remember when I first started work, men standing on street corners in Wellington City in New Zealand preaching. Back then, I had no idea that what they were saying exactly To me, it just sounded like one long, unstructured ramble. But Alan and I were in Hokitika recently, on the west coast of New Zealand, of New Zealand's South Island, when a young couple came up to us. She had a young baby on her hip, a young son, and he, her husband, asked us, he asked us if we were in a hurry, could they talk to us about Jesus? As it turns out, we were racing the clock at that time, so we couldn't talk, but we did let them know that we were practicing Catholics, which they excitedly replied with great God bless. I imagine that it must have been a bit, that they must have been a bit like what Paul did back in the day. Every opportunity he had, or he created opportunities, he spoke about Jesus. And then every opportunity he could, he wrote to his converts, making sure they were still believing and still living the straight and narrow life of Christians. Now, with all of that as the backdrop, let's now pray with God and St. Paul from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. You observed the sort of life we lived when we were with you, which was for your instruction, and you were led to become imitators of us and of the Lord. And it was with the joy of the Holy Spirit that you took to the gospel, in spite of the great opposition all around you. This has made you the great example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia, since it was from you that the word of the Lord started to spread. And not only throughout Macedonia and Achaia, for the news of your faith in God has spread everywhere. We do not need to tell other people about it. Other people tell us how we started the work among you, how you broke with idolatry when you were converted to God and became servants of the real living God and how you are now waiting for Jesus, his Son, whom you raised from the dead, to come from heaven to save us from the retribution which is coming. And now, 
now let's go to the gospel reading from Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. What was going on at that time? When? Again, we have the Pharisees trying to trip Jesus up. We talked about this last week. The Pharisees were a prominent religious group or a sect within Judaism during the Second Temple period. So that's roughly spanning from about the 6th century BC through to the 1st century AD. So that time is when Jesus was alive. They played a significant role in the religious, the social and the political life of Judea, especially in the centuries just before and during the time of Jesus. Unlike the Sadducees, referred to in today's Bible passage, which was another significant Jewish group at the time, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead and in an afterlife, but not as we know it. In addition to the written scriptures, what is now known as the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, the Pharisees valued oral traditions. They believed that alongside the oral Torah, an oral interpretation was also given to Moses on Mount Sinai. This oral Torah provided explanations and details not explicit in the written text. They believed in the existence of angels and demons. Unlike the elite-oriented Sadducees, the Pharisees generally had a broad support base among the common people. Many Pharisees were respected teachers and interpreters of Jewish law. They often served as local leaders in synagogues and in communities. The Pharisees frequently appear as adversaries of Jesus in the Bible. They question him, they challenge his teachings, and they test him on various matters of the law, which is what we have going on in today's passage. Jesus, though, knows this. He doesn't let them get one over on him and calls them out often for their hypocrisy and or for getting all hung up on the letter of the law rather than the spirit of it. In saying this, though, not all Pharisees are out to get Jesus. Not all are confrontational. There are some, like Nicodemus, who genuinely want to get to know Jesus. After the destruction of the Second Temple in the year 70 AD by the Romans, the Sadducees, who were closely tied to the temple's priestly functions, faded from prominence. In contrast, though, the Pharisaic emphasis on study, prayer, and personal piety came, became foundational for the subsequent development of Rabbinic Judaism. Much of what's known today as Jewish practice and halakha, Jewish law, has its roots in the Pharisaic tradition. With that as the backdrop, let's now pray together from the Gospel of Matthew. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they got together and, to disconcert him, one of them put a question. Master, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus said, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. The second resembles it. 
You must love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets also. What was God saying to you? Sometimes it's not easy, it's not always easy to get how these Bible passages might be relevant thousands of years after they've been written. But let's have a look. In relation to the first reading, to Exodus, and specifically around justice and fairness, as trite as it sounds, be kind to everyone. Be polite and respectful to everyone, regardless of their background. When it comes to sharing and fairness, then share what you have, even if it's just a smile or your time. I remember my father-in-law when he was alive, Jack, telling me once that after he retired, he had an abundance of time and he was only too willing to share that with as many people as he could. He'd go visiting the rest homes, and he would spend time visiting housebound parishioners, especially to those who had few visitors. He gave his time freely and with a huge heart. That was our Jack. In relation to economic integrity, if you've borrowed something sometime from someone recently or a long time ago, please make sure that you return it. And if you've borrowed it recently, then return it quickly and make sure that it's in excellent condition. When it comes to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians on being a good role model, spend, perhaps, spend each day thinking about one good thing that you did that day and one thing that you could have improved on. When it comes to being a positive influence, Genuinely compliment someone each day. You could make all the difference to their day and their life, especially if they're living in a dysfunctional relationship or maybe they're alone. When it comes to Matthew's gospel on loving others, start and finish your day by being grateful for one thing each and every day. Wake up with gratefulness in your heart and go to sleep being thankful for your life. These are small and very simple steps, but if you practice them every day, they'll have a cumulative effect which you'll find profound and positive. Thank you for spending the last half an hour or so of your life with God, with Moses, with Paul, Matthew and me. I pray that each of them has been able to make the difference that God wishes for you today in their own way in your life. Thank you for getting this far. If you enjoyed today's show, would you help me please spread God's word about your Catholic corner? All you have to do is tell your friends and family about your Catholic corner so they can benefit as well. It's easy. Just invite them to visit yourcatholiccorner.com and they can follow and listen to the show from there. It's free. 
It doesn't cost anything. Thank you for doing that. Wherever you are, I pray that God's glass of love overflows in your heart and your life. And that when you're ready, you're able to accept God's invitation to you to join him to share in Holy Communion this week at your local parish. Also, I pray you'll be able to hear Samuel's words and say, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And finally, I'd like to say thank you to the parishioners of the Cathedral of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Hamilton, New Zealand, who helped me bring this podcast to you today. This is Julie South signing off until next week. Peace be with you. God bless.